Hi, I'm Yaakov Katz, and welcome to a new episode of the Jewish People Policy Institute's Inside Analysis of the State of Affairs in Israel and the Jewish World. On today's episode, we have a lot to unpack as reports swirl from around the world of a possible new deal coming for a ceasefire slash hostage release slash prisoner swap. What does Israel want? What will happen if there is a deal? And what will our politics look like in the day after? To get some insight, I speak with Lahav Harko, an American-born Israeli journalist who currently serves as the senior political correspondent of Jewish Insider, covering Israeli politics and diplomacy. I then speak with JPPI fellows Shmuel Rosner and Donna Luzon to get a reading on the pulse of Israeli society ahead of what could be one of the most dramatic developments since October 7th. Here we go. Lahav, it's great to have you back with the JPPI podcast. Happy to be here. So you've been doing a lot of writing for Jewish Insider about all of the different issues related to the war. And we're talking today as... Uh, the cabinet in Israel seems, or the Israeli people, seem to be waiting for Hamas's response to the latest deal that was proposed for a potential ceasefire slash hostage release slash prisoner swap. I don't know what else to put, throw into that, but like a big a big mix of a deal. And um, what's your feeling of where this stands? What are the chances of this deal actually moving forward? And then I actually want to talk to you more specifically about Qatar because you just recently wrote a big piece about it and the really complex relationship, I think, that Israel has with that country, as well as it's just this more general role as uh, playing the bad, the good cop, bad cop all the time. So let's start with the deal. Um, as of the time we're talking, it seems that Hamas doesn't know what it wants with the deal, um, that there's a lot of sort of fighting going on between the quote-unquote political side of Hamas and Hamas in Gaza, right? Where the the leaders of Hamas who live in Qatar think that this is a good deal and that they should take it. Um, and, and what the deal is remains an open question, but we could get into that. Um, and the leadership of Hamas that's in Gaza wants to just keep going, keep fighting. They won't accept any deal that that will weaken them, basically. Um, so right now it looks like a rejection. It seems, though, that all the parties are still pushing for it and that negotiations are still going on. Now, what's in the deal? Like, what we read in the media, right, is that there the deal is like thousands of Palestinian prisoners, including terrorists with blood on their hands, um, being released in exchange for, um, there's different reports, either all the hostages who are not soldiers, basically, or all the hostages stopping the war for, I think last I heard it was one day per hostage. So that's 136 days. Um, and uh, there's talk about exiling the leadership of Hamas. The reports vary. I can say that everyone I talk to in Israel just repeats basically what Netanyahu is saying in public. Like they're repeating it in private too. They're like, we're not going to release thousands of prisoners. We're not going to end the war. So there's a few things like 
that I could say to that, if you want to be very literal, you could say, oh, we're not releasing thousands of, of hostages. Okay, but you could, uh, thousands of prisoners, right? Thousands of Palestinian prisoners, but you could release like 1,900 and it would still be the biggest prisoner swap ever. And you could say it's not thousands. And also you could say ceasefire for 136 days is not the end of the war, you know? So so my feeling is that the Israeli denials are kind of meaningless. But it could be it could be just like we, we after the first release of prisoner of hostages, we renewed after a couple of weeks. So I've heard people also say, okay, we, we renewed the war after those few weeks. We'll renew the war now, even though it might be longer, a few months, we'll we'll also come back and and go back and try to take out the Hamas leadership. Um, although I tend to, I, I, I wonder what you think, because I tend to be a bit skeptical about that. Like, you know, Israelis have this knack of jumping right back to the way things were prior to a conflict. And I think that if if the if after a ceasefire in the south, the north also quiets down and things kind of go back to normal, reservists are released, the country falls back into a sense of normalcy, it'll be hard to renew a conflict at the same intensity. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I also think the difference between last time and this time, theoretically, is that last time most of the hostages remained in Gaza. Um, and the will in the public was very, very strong to bring back the hostages. I think in many ways it remains strong, although I do think that there's some slight, like, now there's like a political debate, right, between the people who think that you need to fight the war with full force and the people who think that the hostages need to be the priority in a way that that was not, there was less of a debate in November. Um, but yeah, I know I agree with you. I think the longer the break, the harder it's going to be to get back to the war and to achieve the, its aims. You know, Lahav, you've covered Netanyahu for a long time. Um, diplomatic correspondent at the Jerusalem Post and in the Knesset when you covered the, the Knesset affairs and, and, of course, now at the Jewish Insider. You know, this this a release again, a wholesale release of of prisoners is supposedly goes against what he believes in, although he did do it with Gilad Shalit and some look at that because that was how Yahya Sinwar got out of Israeli prison where he was and was able to come back to Gaza and, and reestablish himself as the commander and then, of course, lead Hamas on their October 7th massacre inside Israel. But it's something that goes against what he believes. And 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 you're starting to see an uproar among the right, and particularly among some of his coalition members, Smotrich and Ben Gvir, who are opposed to a wholesale release of prisoners and something that would uh, undermine Israeli security in the years to come. And so where do you think he is personally on this? If we look at the Shalit deal as like, you know, an example or an, exp an experience that maybe we can learn from with Netanyahu, I, I actually think that this is one of the few times where Netanyahu does think about like the, the feelings of the public as opposed to his like cold, calculated, political, et cetera. Because I don't even think in the time of the Shalit deal, you know, the right wasn't for releasing a thousand terrorists in exchange for one soldier, but ultimately he went for it. And so I do think that Netanyahu, even though the, the hostages families forum is protesting outside his house and the, they're not saying it, I actually think from experience that Netanyahu does have like a, a soft spot, so to speak, on this issue and that he is willing to make pretty big concessions. That being said, the public statements that he's making are basically the same as what Ben Gvir and Smutrich are saying. In fact, um, Ben Gvir gave an interview to the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. And when you read what Ben Gvir says about a hostage deal, it's exactly the same as what Netanyahu is saying in public, that he won't 
the he won't stay in the coalition if thousands of terrorists are released from prison and if the war ends. And it's like one for one what Netanyahu is saying in public. So, but I mean, it, it, with that said, I mean, Netanyahu is also saying in public, we won't do it here, not at every price or every cost, right? But we all, and we will continue towards the victory. It, it's it's hard to see how all that lines up. And I, I, I go back to what you said before, that there, everything they're saying is not exactly ruling out the prospect. I, I, I want to talk for a moment, Lahav, about Qatar and, and their role in all of this, because they have you know, long been uh, a problem, right? They're funders of Hamas. They provide safe refuge and sanctuary to Hamas leaders who live in Doha. And they are in touch with all the bad actors, Iran, Hamas, Taliban, etc. But now they are, we're the only guys who can help you make a deal. And you wrote a big piece in the Jewish Insider that kind of looks at uh, what what they've done and how they've done it and and the role and their two faced approach essentially to hostage diplomacy. So, tell tell us some of those insights that you got from doing the work on that piece. Yeah, I mean, like Qatar, they're like you know arsonists who are also firefighters. They're lighting things on fire and then they say, "Oh, look, we have the fire truck. We have the big hose. We'll put out the fire." And then everyone should applaud us for being heroes. Um, they, yeah, like you said, they harbor terrorists. They basically, you know, they're they're like a, a family that has a country, like most of the people. I mean, this is true in a lot of Gulf states where like multi, most of the people are, are foreign workers and not citizens of the country. But in Qatar, it's like even more than anywhere else. It's like this extended family and then all these foreign workers. And so, and the Amir's family, you know, overall they ascribe to the the Muslim Brotherhood ideology. They're the ones who are behind Al Jazeera and all the extremist messages that are being put out there. They're constantly harboring terrorists. You know, the leaders of Hamas live there, but like you said, also the Taliban for a while. Um, and they present themselves to the Western world as, oh, we're doing this for you so that you have a channel, right? And the benefit that they get is, first of all, they're a major non-NATO ally of the U.S. You know, the CENTCOM is there. Um, they And they say to them, you know, we're, we're doing this for you, right? Like, it's also the thing when people complain to Qatari leadership about Hamas living there, they're like, no, the Israelis want them there. Now, I think in a sense, like Israel, there's two things. Like Israel in a way fell into Qatar's trap, right? They needed someone to talk to Hamas, but they had Egypt. Egypt used to be able to talk to Hamas. And the benefit, the, the plus side of Egypt was that Egypt doesn't like Hamas, at least, you know, Egypt, as opposed to like for like two years when Morsi was inside was in charge. But other than that, Egypt doesn't like Hamas. And so they were a much better sort of mediator for Israel. Whereas with Qatar, they share the same ideology as Hamas. So that's not like great for us. And on the other hand, Qatar was giving them money so that they can rebuild and rehabilitate. And for a long time, it was the Israeli view, which now we know how foolish this was, but that somehow economic incentives can deter Hamas and sort of keep them from attacking Israel. And so I that's I, on the face of it, why Israel preferred Qatar, I also reported five years ago that Netanyahu told members of Likud in a closed meeting that if Hamas is strong in Gaza, then the Palestinian Authority and Hamas will remain divided, and then it'll be harder for them to have a Palestinian state, and so the right should support allowing Qatar to fund Hamas. I think um, 
Netanyahu thought he was playing 4D chess with everyone, and in the end, he was the one being played. It's 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 really interesting, and I've I've actually spoken with intelligence officials or former intelligence officials in Israel who have said that you know, like what, what, over the years, there was a lot of financial warfare that Israel did to try to undermine the 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 channels of money and funding to Hamas in Gaza, and whether it was you know China or Iran or Turkey or things like that. But Qatar, they never touched and they never operated there. And even though people had bank accounts, I'm even talking about before the suitcases of cash were being sent into Gaza, there were channels, there were bank tracks that were going through Qatar and uh, and and the Israeli intelligence agencies were hands off because of, you know, this again, this this complicated relationship that we have there. Uh, Lahav, the, the, the political day after, which might be coming if in fact there is going to be a deal that's going to see a ceasefire and a release of the hostages is basically going to be the uh, the kickoff point for probably Benny Gantz and Gadi Eisenkot to leave the government and then for the protests to emerge in a much bigger way. What do you think Netanyahu's plan is for that? Netanyahu usually just thinks that he can work his magic and it's worked for him in the past. Whatever it is, you know, he talks about being Mr. Security and he's the only one with the experience and the knowledge to be able to protect and defend the country. And and I think that he still thinks that he can do that, which in many ways, I, I mean, I find it very strange after October 7th, you know, which is like the worst disaster that has happened to this country in 50 years. Um, you know, I, I, you look at the polls, clearly there there's some segments of the public that's buying it but it doesn't not enough of the public for him to form another coalition but i don't see from the things he's saying and doing that he thinks he has some other plan you know i think he's just trying to hold on as long as he can and hopefully the war will turn around hopefully for him the war will turn around and and he'll just tell people he's mr security and look he saved israel after the disaster or something like that I know, but come on, you 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 watched that interview he did with Douglas Murray, right? The British journalist slash commentator, I don't know what to call him, um, who's been very pro-Israel throughout this conflict. And he, he was asked about October 7th, and, and he said, you know, I warned and I, you know, was constantly, I, w- I wanted to do something about it. I mean, like, it was like, what do you mean you wanted to and you warned? You were the prime minister. I have to say, I like Douglas Murray a lot. I've read a bunch of his books. I think I thought he was great even before this war. I was really surprised he didn't push back more because like he's he's smart and he has no reason to be in Netanyahu's pocket. Like he really could have pushed back a lot more on things Netanyahu said. Anyway, um, yeah, so that's what I'm saying. Like I, I think that Netanyahu, you know, we talk, Israelis like to talk about the conceptia, these like preconceptions that people had that turned out to be wrong. I, I just think that Netanyahu is still in his political preconception that he thinks that he can continue with politics as usual. And look, people, the public has a short memory, but I just don't think that they'll have a short memory about October 7th. I mean, you know, you talk to so many people and they feel like it's, you know, this has been the longest month of October ever and we're in February now. And who knows when this is all going to end. Okay, Lahav, thank you very much, Lahav Harkov from the Jewish Insider. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. That was great to have Lahav on the show. Uh, Dinah, I want to start with you. You know, th- there is obviously lots of talk right now about the hostages and what's going to happen 
And are they going to come back? And what's the right price that price that Israel needs to pay? And is it Is it at any cost or any price that Israel should pay? And these are not simple questions. And I can thank God I don't have to be at all involved in making these decisions. I get the best job to sit back and criticize whatever decision is made. But uh, what what are your thoughts? You know, you've long been when we've had you on the on the on the on the podcast, you've long been pushing that that needs to be the most important goal of this war. So where do you stand on that today, knowing that there's going to be a big price for Israel to pay? I was asking myself this question again and again because I think we are all asking ourselves this question again and again, and we we and this is a this is a question we need to go deep because what bothers me is that. I hear voices in Israel which are saying the price is too high to release the hostages and you you talk about swiping the 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 terrorist you know that the terrorists that we are having and which are a very extreme one and people are saying we can't do this deal we can't stop the war and we can't release those terrorists and this this is this is a huge price and what bothers me is that It's much more easy to imagine what will happen if we stop the war and if we release the terrorists. And I understand that. I understand you can imagine more terror attack and, and maybe another war and people are, will get hurt. And this is something we know to imagine. And I think this, it's, it's, it is much more easy to be, to be afraid from that result. I don't think we can imagine what will happen if we are not bringing the hostages back because this is something we haven't been dealing with before. We don't know this situation. This is something new. And I think when people are saying we can't stop the war, we can't do this, the, the, the swiping of the prisoners, it's because they can't imagine this situation. But I'm asking myself this question again and again. And I, when I'm trying to imagine not bringing our hostages back, I see a country which is broken, which the core essence of the country is broken, which the deep values of the country are broken. This is the country I'm asking myself, do I want to live in this place? Do I want to fight for this place? If, if I know that I'm a citizen and nobody will take care of me and bring me back, why should I want to live here? Why should it go? I will go to the army. The, the contract between the city, sorry, between the citizens and the country is being broken. And no one can imagine this result. And that's, I think, why it's more easy to say, no, no, the price is too high. Well, I, I mean, let, let, me, let me just add in there that I, I agree with you to a large extent that obviously there is a very, there's, there's a lot of value in having a strong social contract between the citizens of a country and the government. However, we also have to consider the fact that we're setting ourselves up for another hostage taking. And based on whatever price we do pay, and you know, we saw that with the Shalit deal, right? We release a thousand plus prisoners and then you, for one soldier, you know that you're going to get more hostages That are going to come in the future. And Shmuel, I, I, I want to turn to you. And I mean, these are really, these are the issues that are on the table. And of course, in it is a lot of politics, right? Because the Prime Minister Netanyahu has already violated 
prior ideology back when he made the Shalit deal in 2011. And to do that once again, especially when he's outflanked in his government by more right-wing elements who are opposed to a wholesale release of prisoners, even though they, they, they would agree with Dana about the social contract, I mean, this is this is really not a simple equation. Like, is there is there a price that Israel can live with, or is it not about the price? It's about the the, the ideology. Like, what, what what do you see really behind it all? Well, let me begin by saying that uh, there is no deal on the table. We we keep talking about this um, imaginary deal. Uh, I don't know of any deal that was offered to Israel to which Israel responded with a yes or a no. Uh, the last deal we had was uh, um, um, broken by Hamas. And since then, we've been negotiating, but a lot of these negotiations were uh, between us and ourselves. It's not real negotiation between us and the other side. So first of all, before we can say a yes or a no to any deal, there needs to be a deal on the table that we can consider because the, the devil is in the details concerning any, any such deal. That's point number one. Point number two is that there you cannot say at any price or at no price. This is not a binary situation in which you say, I accept no deal or I accept any deal. You must look at the details and consider the, the, the offer that's on the table. I agree that it will be a tragedy to uh, not to be able to bring back the hostages, but there is no such thing as at any price. What what if the what if Hamas says, well, we agree to give back the hostages if you let us control uh, Ashkelon and Ashdod? Well, obviously, that's not a deal that Israel will be willing to consider. To, so all these slogans that we hear at no price, at any price, tomorrow, now, all these are good for for you know for rallies and for for uh, banners. These are not things that policymakers can actually consider. Now concerning the the actual deal, if there is a deal on the table. There are two things to consider. One, the Israeli public is torn about this deal. And currently, um, there are more people opposing a deal than people supporting it if the parameters for a deal are such um, that will bring an end to the war. Most of the Israeli public oppose a deal that will uh, uh, let Hamas get off the hook and basically stay in power. If that's the deal, most people reject it. Moreover, a vast majority of people who support the current government reject it. So here you have this political consideration that is becoming part of the issue. Is the government only considering the better of the country or maybe the values and the beliefs and the ideals of the part of the country that supports the government. By and large, I, I tend to think that the government wants to do what's right for Israel. 
But we cannot ignore the fact that this government is not highly trusted by the public. And, and that's an issue. If these were ministers, if this was a prime minister that most people accept as um, trustworthy and legitimate, we would have been in a different situation because then you could say, well, whatever decision they make, and they must be the ones who make the decision, it's probably a fact-based and, you know, the, the rational decision to make. You don't have to agree with it, but at least you agreed that you, you accept the fact that it was made in good faith. The fact that many Israelis do not, do not feel that this government is trustworthy makes a complicated situation even more complicated. I have a problem. In I have a problem when we like I'm asking myself how we would look like in a few years. What will people think? Hostages are becoming a political issue. Is it is this is insane? This is insane. If we managed because of this government to take an issue like hostages and make it a political issue, this is something I can't accept. It's not normal. This, this is life of human beings. How do we look like? I don't understand that. And I agree. Yes, Dana, but you know, I, I have I have very little uh, uh, wish to to defend uh, the current government in any shape of way. How how however however, the, the politicization of the hostages issue is is evident in both sides. The fact, but it's both sides. From early on, uh, one second. From early on, and I think Shmuel's right. From early on, the 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 the, the people who are opposed to Netanyahu. And those are the people who are running the hostage forum. And these are the people who came from the judicial overhaul protests. And that's fine. They identified in the hostages from a very early stage that this is a way to uh, hit the government. Now, legitimately so. Taking 240 people from their bedrooms is a complete failure, a colossal failure the government was responsible for and should be knocked and hit and attacked as a result. But 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 it's a two way street. There, I think there is a undercurrent that some of these elements do want to see this further weaken Netanyahu. But I think that the bigger the, the, the bigger question, though, Donna, is that we can think about the 136 people who are in Gaza, and I, and I think about them all the time, and I'm sure all of us do because it's heartbreaking, and and we know people, and we know families, and and it, and it and it tears at our hearts. And by the way, this is what Hamas's greatest success was they able to, they were able to do something that didn't end on October 7th. They've been able to carry out the pain for Israel every single hour since October. But you have 136 people, and you have a country whose security also needs to be taken into account. And that's why these decisions are so complicated. I don't think those decisions are too complicated. And when we are saying this, the hostages are becoming political, and when we are saying it's in both sides, I, I don't see that this way. I think the government is so... Uh, we know the ideology of this government. And I think the government itself made it a political issue. And if and when Shmuel said there is a problem of trust, he's so right. Because if the government was a different one, 
I don't think the hostages would become a political one, a political issue. And I can't put 136 people against a country. This is not the right equation. Even if it was only 10, you can't neglect your people. If a country was, was, you know, you said this is the most, this is the most outrageous thing that happened to Israel. And this is the, the failure of everyone, not only the government, of everyone. And if we all failed and people were taken from their beds, we can't fail again and just leave them because we are now, now we decided that we are going to end the war. Now we are going to destroy Hamas, not going to destroy Hamas. That's the, the fact that we're going into Gaza and destroying the, the, the buildings. This is not destroying Hamas. We know this is a, a, an issue of so many years and the hostages, they don't have so many years. And this is the equation, not the 100 and the country, the time. The time is the equation. So, Shmuel, I want to move with you for a second to politics and talk about, you know, if there is a deal. And I think we all share the, the desire for there to be a deal that would bring back the hostages. The devil's in the details, as you said before, exactly what that means. But Yeah, the, we, we share the desire to have a good deal. Okay, but that's going to be, that's like the, you know, like at the, the marathon or the race where someone is with, stands with that gun and shoots the bullet or whatever it's called and everyone starts taking off i feel like the moment there's that deal that's what's going to happen you're going to have benny Gantz and Gadi eisenkot flee the government you're going to have all these protests break out to the streets reservists will come back soldiers will be pulled out of gaza even more they'll feel like the war is over to an extent they can now protest this is going to get hectic at the best and terrible at the worst what do you expect to see happening well, I think that some people in the government are still entertaining the possibility that they'll be able to keep the government together, the coalition together, and and stay in power for uh, for the duration of of the term. I don't think that's a that's a realistic thought. I I assume that at some point, whether it's because of a hostage deal, whether it's because of a decision by uh, uh, generals Gantz and Eisenkot to leave the government. Whether it's because you know time will will pass, and conditioned on the question of what happens in the north, which is still an open question, at some point maybe it'll take a month or two months, or maybe it'll take until the until springtime. At some point, Israel will go back into some kind of of political maneuver for sure, and maybe political chaos, and the government will have to face reality, which means that uh, there will need to be a new election. Uh, some people say, well, we might not need an election. It could be a new coalition. Um, maybe. I don't think that. I think a new coalition will require a new election. Uh, I expect election in Israel to take place before the end of 2024. I must admit, you know, with with some humility that I was wrong in the past. I might be wrong again, but this is what I think is going to happen. Shmuel, um, don't feel bad. It's Israeli politics. They're the most unpredictable in the world. I, I, no, I I know. I think the 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 uh, the rational the rational expectation at this point is that 
uh, in a few weeks or a few months, Israel will have to decide on a new date for election. Again, there are many scenarios that can lead to such decision, but ultimately I believe that pro probably next fall, Israel is going to go uh, uh, to election, elect a new coalition and a new government. And, and these are going to be uh, tough elections. Uh, the stakes are very high. Uh, and I think the result will be, will be highly meaningful. Uh, but hopefully the good guys, um, the good guys will, will win. Who are the good guys? <laughs> I'm I'm not going to I, I, I'm I'm teasing you. You don't need to answer that, <laughs> Donna. I, I do want to ask you just quickly. The um the, the Netanyahu is going to face protests, right? If I was his advisor, I would probably say to him, "Listen, why don't you consider setting set up a commission of inquiry that will take out some of the air from the protests? It won't be enough because the protests want you to step down. But the moment that you call elections." That could also give people what they've looked for. You know, there will be elections. But the, the mandate goes back to the people to determine. Do you think that a call for elections, even initiated by Netanyahu, where he says, I'll do the elections in September or after the Chagim in, in November, will that will that stop the protests? I think yes. I think yes. I think that if Netanyahu will step tomorrow and will say, what happened to Israel is horrible, and I'm so sorry. Their responsibility is on me, and I hear you people. I hear my citizens, and therefore, I'm asking to have elections in. I think the country will be shocked. The quiet will be back. I think it will be so surprising, but... And that, Even if he runs in that election. And I think this is the only way, the only way for him now, maybe to, to, posit, to, to, to posit himself in a better situation. I think if, I don't know why all his, uh, all the people who would just give him advice don't say him, don't tell him to do that. But I think this is what he needs to do. It, it may say, it might save him, might. Shmuel, do you agree with that? That if if he calls for early elections, that would that would take the air out of the protests. Well, it will take some of the air out of the protest, but uh, it will not uh, lead him to victory. Uh, currently, all the polls show him losing badly in election. If he decides to announce new election now, he has nothing to show for. Uh, uh, the the only thing that people will remember is the is the huge failure of October seventh. Hamas is not yet defeated. Hezbollah is not yet defeated. Uh, the country is still in some ways torn apart. Uh, I don't think this situation is, um, is one in which a prime minister wants to go to a new election. And that's why I think Netanyahu avoids it and will only go in such direction when no al other alternative presents itself. It, it might require either some members of his party saying enough and agreeing to support a call for new election, uh, or the country going, you know, half the country going back to the streets 
And then we will have, uh, you know, a night or a day such as the one we had a year ago when the judicial reform was stopped by uh, 300,000 people uh, going out the streets. Uh, we will see a similar scenario, a day or a week of huge protest and then a call for new election. I want to add one sentence uh, on what Shmuel said. I think there is something that is important for Netanyahu, and this is the way people will remember him in the history. If you're not going to win the elections, and if you need to take responsibility to what happened, and you should, and you need to do that at the end, and there is no way to, you know, to, to, to change what happened into a positive situation, there is no, there is no way. By saying I'm responsible, by saying I'm calling for elections, this is the only way this situation in the history still might look at him in a positive light. This is the only way. Thank you for joining us today. You can find all our episodes where you get your podcasts. Please share widely and give us a five-star review. We will see you back here soon.